So if you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 8, and we are going to look at uh, the people's request to God. Last time that we talked, two weeks ago, the people had repented. They had recognized that their problems were not uh, enemy problems, people outside the gates wanting to come in. Their problems were also not leadership problems um, because God had shown that he could deal with the enemies on his own without them. He could deal with the leaders on his own without them. And uh, they recognized finally that their problems were between them and God and that what they needed to do above all else was just repent and say, God, we have got to shift our gaze back to you and turn away from the things that we have found ourselves looking to instead. And, and as they repented, and now uh, we're coming after a long season of them following after God, seeking after God, uh, under the sort of the guidance of Samuel, this new priest and judge that God gives them, we're now going to read about what happens. Basically, we, we jump from the beginning, the very beginning of Samuel's ministry, to the end it seems, of his ministry with the people here in chapter 8 and see what happens after that. So we're going to look at a couple verses as we start off here, just uh, maybe the first five verses of 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. And then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So what we see here uh, first is uh, the people, the elders of the people coming to Samuel. Now uh, the people, as we said, have learned an important lesson. And the lesson that they've learned is our security is in God. It is not in these other things. But they've also recognized that they look to the priest, they look to the judge to be the one who is the bridge between them and God. And so they feel really dependent on that person. And so what Samuel's done is it says he's sort of given some leadership to his sons. He's given them a chance. It emphasizes that they're in a different place. He's kind of said, you know, you guys can have some authority over here. You can judge, and judge means to rule. It means to govern. Um, uh, you can govern over people over here. But unfortunately, as he gave them the ability to do that, what the people saw instead caused them to worry about this next generation. They're afraid of what the future looks like under the leadership of his sons. Now, there's two things that it says here about these sons. The first was that they took bribes. Uh, it says that they took bribes, and that shows the fact that they have essentially compromised who they are. 
A judge is somebody who is supposed to be able to be objective, okay? They're supposed to be able to deal in the kingdom of God with people and not the kingdom of the world. And in order to do that, they can't have, they can't can't be tied up and concerned about all the things of this world. Otherwise, they can't perform that function well. Otherwise, they'll be compromised. And so God has a system set up in which, okay, a priest, a judge, this person will not have to worry about money. They will not have to worry about food. They won't have to worry about their provision of their family so they can be focused on the kingdom of God and they can treat all of these people impartially. But sometimes they take bribes. And, and why is that a bad thing? Well, obviously, bribes are not a good thing, but specifically in this kind of an instance, because what a bribe is, is it's a person saying, if I give you money, if I pay you more, if I do more for you, if you get more out of me than someone else, then you show me favor. And what does that do? It begins to change the status of the people of Israel within, with these priests and these judge, judges, right? So now they're not dealing with everyone equally. They're not seeing everyone equally the way that God sees his children and loves them all equally. They see them as the ones with more money, the ones with less money, the ones who have done more for me and the ones who haven't done quite so much for me. And what does that lead to? Well, it leads to uh, compromise. It leads to uh, this, this ability now to be divided in their loyalty. They're not just loyal to God, they're loyal to certain people. And that's going to affect the way that these guys judge, right? Nobody wants to be judged by a person. Nobody wants to be governed by a person who they know is not looking out for your needs as much as the person next to you that they're looking out for that person's needs more. And it doesn't have to do with their righteousness, their correctness. It has to do with how much money they have or they've given them. And so what they have first is they have compromised leaders. And these compromised leaders are distracted by worldly needs. They can't be truly detached or objective in the way that they need to be. And this has the people pretty worried. The other thing that they say is that they have perverted justice. Now, this word perverted, when you translate it, it means to be stretched out or distorted from the way that something is supposed to be. So if a thing is supposed to be a certain shape and it's been stretched and distorted, it's been perverted. Now, uh, what happens when a judge or when a priest perverts justice is they don't get rid of it. They don't say, oh, justice doesn't matter. Right and wrong don't matter. Morals don't matter. The holiness doesn't matter. No, they don't say that, right? They say, they say, uh, they, they take that concept and they keep it right where it is because that's how the priest has power and authority, right? That's where it comes from, is they're the expert on justice. They're the expert on being right or being wrong, on being good or being bad. And so they're not going to get rid of this concept. No, that's not what it looks like to pervert justice. They're going to keep it front and center and be like, you need justice just as much as you did before because I'm the guy in charge of justice and I want you to need me. But... Uh, what that looks like has been stretched and distorted into something that it isn't supposed to be. So ultimately, apart from just being compromised, these leaders are corrupt, and they have shaped this idea of justice not to reflect God's image, but their own. Okay, so a corrupt leader will take the idea of what is good, and it will reflect what they want, not what God wants, right? The things that make me angry are the things that should make you angry, not God. The things that I think are important and good are what matters, not what God says matters. The 
the, the way of living, the way of being, the priorities become my priorities because I've become corrupted, because I've perverted justice, and now you need to worry about those things. My enemies are your enemies. My concerns should be your concerns as the people, and they stop being God's concerns. So as they've watched this happen with uh, Samuel's sons, they've started to worry. And very meanly, I would say, in a pretty mean way, they come up to him and they say, you are old. Yikes. Let's be a little more gentle about that. So obviously, you're not going to be doing this forever. And your sons are blowing it. And so we don't have a lot of confidence in them. And so because of this, they're starting to worry. Now, they have good reason to worry, to be honest. The Israelites kicked the Philistines out of the promised land when they came into it. They are not pleased about the Israelites being here. The Philistines have bigger uh, armies. They have more advanced technology and weaponry and armor and all these things. Uh, And the Philistines aren't going anywhere. They want that place that the Israelites are living in. And so to be an Israelite living here in the promised land means essentially having to get used to the fact that you have enemies at your gates who are always wanting in. And those enemies are pretty scary. They have a reason to care about their security, their safety. And the problem comes when they begin to get so focused on those enemies that are there on the outside, the things that are against them, the odds that they're facing, that they lose sight of the thing that they should be much more fearful of, which is God himself. I have a friend who is a cancer survivor, and he recently began experiencing a lot of anxiety just over uh, recurrence of cancer. And then go to figure, as soon as that started to happen, or a few weeks after that began happening, he, uh, he started experiencing some really weird stuff physiologically in his body that started to really alarm him. He started to freak out about these things now that he was feeling that he wasn't feeling before. You see, our bodies are like our central nervous system basically has these different parts of it that operate different ways. There's the things that our bodies do that we don't have to tell it to do, right? Like, you know, breathing and your heart beating and, you know, all that different stuff and the things that sort of regulate how well things go. And uh, we don't really automatically control those things. They, they happen automatically on their own. And then there are the things that we have to tell our body to do. And then there's the things that our body will do so quickly in response to a situation. It's part of the s- sympathetic nervous system. It sympathizes with what we're going through. So if, a, if, if, I'm, if I'm doing okay, it means that my body is doing a pretty good job of monitoring everything, keeping it all pretty healthy. But then when I encounter a threat, my body is going to try to do something, and we call that fight or flight. And before I can even tell my body to do this thing, it's going to start doing stuff. And so my heart's going to start pumping faster, and all kinds of things are going to start happening so that I can deal with the threat that's presented in front of me. I can either fight Or I can run away, in my experience, a lot more running away. And I can run away from that thing. But uh, then, once the threat is gone, then our bodies are supposed to kind of calm back down and kind of get us back to a place where we're okay and we're stable. What happens 
to a body when it stays in that place, though? What happens to a body when it stays in a place of constant threats, of constant anxiety? It isn't able to calm back down. The adrenaline that's pumping in your bloodstream kind of staying there and is changing the very chemistry, it seems, uh, as your heart keeps beating that fast and doesn't get a break, as you stop being able to sleep and do other things, you can't digest food the way that you're supposed to be able to normally. All these things start to happen as a body breaks down because it's not meant to live in this extended state of tension all the time. So as my friend began to be anxious about his health, his body started to react and do crazy things that made him even more anxious about his health. And uh, in the same way that our bodies, these organisms that we are, as these beings that we are, that God has made to function this way, happen, work this way. In the very same way, you see communities function. As the Israelites are presented with a threat, uh, the more that the people begin to focus on that threat, that fear, that anxiety, the longer they spend in that place over time, what happens is they themselves begin to break down. They stop working the way they're supposed to work. They start doing things that seem kind of crazy and weird and don't seem like the most reasonable things to do. Why? Because they've focused too much on this thing that gives them anxiety. And by focusing on that for too long, it started to really mess up the way they work as people. The Philistine threat to the Israelite border is constant. It's been there since they came into the promised land, and they have no reason to believe that it's going to ever be gone for good, or it's going to be gone for for good anytime soon. So they have to learn to live with the threat without focusing on it. When they fail to do that, they begin to suffer as a people. The symptoms start. And as extreme as their situation may seem and may sound, it's not all that hard for us to know how they feel. It is not actually all that hard for us to know how it feels to be, it seems, surrounded by things that feel like threats, that feel like danger. In fact, I think we have very good reason to feel that way to feel that there's these potential and possible threats out there on the periphery uh, that can so easily become the center of the focus that we have, our field of vision, right? I could get sick no matter how much I try to take care of myself, no matter how much I try to exercise and eat right and, and avoid all the vices that can cause the body to break down. I know that cancer could still come. I know that tragedy can still strike. I know that these things can still happen in a way that I can't totally prevent them. I could lose the money that I have worked so hard for, that I have saved so much for. My, my income is fixed either because I'm retired or because it's all basically spent as soon as I get it. And, and there's fear of what happens when something else comes up that I can't take care of, that I can't account for. The economy could tank, the bubble could burst, and that will make things very hard and very bad for me in my life. I can't always watch my kids, I can't always protect them. Something could happen. 
no matter how hard I try to keep them safe. I can, can, can barely take care of my aging parents. Who's going to take care of me? Will I be able to take care of myself? Can I control these things? Because I know that it seems that they're out there. Somebody could simply drift across the yellow line and run right into me. I have known families that have been, uh, that have been changed permanently because of a drunk driver, because of a person texting while driving, regardless of all the things they've done to try to be safe. Are you freaked out yet? Laying in bed at night and hearing ice fall off of the trees, okay? If there was ever a time to say the sky is falling, this is when we get to say it. Because if it's not ice, it's tree branches or power lines. The sky is literally falling as we lay in bed at night. We know what it is to be reminded of these threats that are there that seem overwhelming, things that I cannot take care of or deal with or do enough to plan for. We know what it is to be surrounded by things that are scary, just as the Israelites have had to learn to live in this place, to kind of be in this place for an extended period of time. To focus on these things, though, and to lose sight of that which is bigger, which is God himself, will always lead to fear. It will lead to, and fear will always lead to control. It will always lead to compromise. It will always lead to even despair. And it will lead us away from the one who we ought to rightly be fearing, which is God himself. And so the people have done this. They focus too much on the enemies. They forgot that God can take care of things, even if Samuel's sons are bad, and even if Samuel's getting old. And so, in their fear, they do something in an effort to somehow be in control of what it is that's going on. You know, Jesus talks a lot about fear, about anxiety, and what it means to be afraid of things. He says in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll go back to that one. He says, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The most abundant command in Scripture is to not fear. And it's there for a reason. Because when our gaze shifts away from God, we have a lot of reason to fear. A lot of different things. So if we go back and read the rest of the interaction between Samuel and Can we go back one slide? And Samuel and these guys, we read now Samuel's response here. It says in verse 6, And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all 
that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, according to all the deeds that they have done. From the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. In their fear, God says they are not, Samuel, don't take this personal. It's not because you're too old, and it's not even because of your sons. It's because of me. They are forsaking me, says God. And he says this isn't the first time that they've done it. The fear has not gotten bigger in terms of the threat. The circumstances are no different than they've been every other time. The people are simply, yet again, focusing not on God, the one that brings them life and safety and salvation, but focusing on the threat that they see and get so easily distracted by. So, God tells him, I want you to go back and tell them, okay, fine, you can have your king, because that's what they do out of their fears. They say, if you just make us like everybody else, give us a king to judge the nations, then we think that things will be okay. And he says, fine, I'll give you one, but it's going to cost you. And here's what he says. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and all of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. God is saying through Samuel to the people, fine, if you want a king like everyone else, then it's going to cost you what it costs everyone else. To say to God, we want to be like all the other nations, is uh, it's kind of messed up because the thing that makes God's people his people is uh, the fact that uh, they're different from everybody else. So to say to God, God, we want to be like everyone else is like, uh, is like going to your children and saying, you know, if it's okay, you know, I hope you guys don't mind, but I, I don't think I want to be a parent anymore. I think I'm going to kind of go you know, you're, you're out of here. Uh, I want to live life without you guys. You're making things too hard for me and just see how that goes. It's like going to your spouse and saying, you know, I don't, I think I want to experience single life and I think I want to kind of enjoy the freedom of that for a while, right? It's like going to your parents one day and saying, you know, 
to be uh, to be fair, I've been telling all of my friends that that you died because I just I didn't like you know you being my parents, and I wanted to kind of see what it was like just on my own without you. Right? Uh, that is the equivalent of uh, it is it is telling a person that the very relationship itself is one that you don't want anymore, and to say no offense, I'm sure you understand, but. And then saying something that completely invalidates the entire relationship that you share with one another. To say this, we want to be like other people. The one thing that they're not ever intended to be. is like the most messed up thing that they can say. And why would they say it? They would say it because they are desperate for something that we become desperate for when fear creeps in. The first thing that fear does to us is it leads us to control. It leads us to want to control things in hopes some way that the threats outside will be sort of subdued. And so this is what many of us do. We control. In an effort to control the threat outside their borders, they want a king who will lead them into battle. They will eventually come and say, And as is always the case, people seeking control will ultimately do things that they regret. This is not a new concept. People in the ancient world were constantly looking for ways to feel in control of their surroundings. In fact, it was simple. You created an idol. You made an idol, and you called that thing a god, and you said, if we sacrifice to this thing, then we feel that... You know, the, the, something is unpredictable and hard to control is fertility. If we give enough to this God and celebrate and make a sacrifice in this way, then we feel a little bit more in control. If we uh, sacrifice enough and give enough to this God of war, to this God of, of, of the sun, to this God of water, to any of these different gods that we create, then we feel in control. And the priests of these, of these religious groups and these gods, they were all for it. You know that control is happening. There's an effort to control when somebody says, all you have to do is, and then if you do that thing, you're going to be fine. It feels good. We feel more in control of a situation that just a few minutes ago we had no control over. But when we do this, when we do things for the sake of control, we ultimately always end up compromising. You know that you're acting out of fear when you're choosing to do something that you know isn't good or maybe you know isn't the best because you're concerned about an even worse thing from happening. Instead of the thing that we know is true and good, we settle for the lesser of two evils. And we say, what I know is this, when I focus on this thing that I can't control, I know that I've got to just at least do this. And I know. It always takes an explanation, right? Why am I doing this thing that I maybe shouldn't be doing? Why have I settled for this thing? Because fear leads to control, and when we control, we find ourselves compromising. We settle for less because it makes us feel like we can do something about this. When we listen to and give in to this fear, we will look for and expect things that cannot save us. And as we do this, we hurt ourselves even more. How do we do this? How do we settle for less 
in an effort to just feel sort of in control? How do we find ourselves compromising when the anxiety creeps in and we lose sight of how big God is? A fearful church will stop trying to reach the lost out of fear of losing those that we already have. A fearful parent will stop raising children out of fear and will simply try to keep them alive, to just keep them healthy and growing. A fearful spouse will be filled with worry about their husband or their wife's love and faithfulness to them, where they will be too afraid of, like, rejection to ever be completely honest with their feelings. And they will compromise. A fearful employee will slave away, obsessed with the need to control over their, through just, their efforts, their accomplishments. If I can do enough, if I can just be good enough, if I can accomplish enough, then I know it's probably not the best thing, but at least it will give me a sense that I'm in control. It will give me a sense that I've done something. A well-known pastor, Eugene Peterson, in talking about his life in ministry, looking back, said he came to this realization that his ministry was infected with the messianic virus, is what he called it. He said he had become a host to the diseased idea that he was to be the savior of his people by attending to every single one of their needs, rather than by helping them be attentive to what God was doing in their lives. Right? None of us can relate to that feeling, right? A need to know that you're doing enough, that you're doing something, is a way of compromising out of fear because we just have to be doing something about what's going on around us. A fearful boss is going to chew through people, relationships, for the sake of making enough profit or meeting the goals that they see in front of them. They will settle for the end regardless of the means and how you get there. A fearful family will see those outside their home as potential enemies and threats rather than as neighbors. When fear creeps in, love fades away. You know, one of the things that I've recognized over this last year, one of the things that's interesting is that as we talk in times of crisis, and there have been some serious crises over the last year, year and a half, as we talk about crises, as we talk about, and the need to prepare for these things, we don't often just talk about storing up food and water and generators and stuff like that. We, we, we talk about having ways of protecting ourselves from the people who might take those things from us, right? The fact that we're going to turn on each other in these times. And yet what I've experienced in the last year, year and a half, is that outside of a toilet paper aisle of a grocery store, because it is true, like all bets are off in the toilet paper aisle of the grocery store, outside of a grocery store, I have found the exact opposite to have happened. I have found people in my own neighborhood actually reaching out to one another and actually becoming closer to one another in the midst of a crisis rather than turning on each other, defending ourselves from each other, rather than seeing each other as potential enemies and threats when things are scarce, seeing and looking and saying, how is it that I can help? The harder that things seem to get, the more generosity and compassion and unity I've experienced from those around me. I have built relationships rather than see them be eroded. I had to figure out how to get an extension cord through the fences that I build for privacy 
from the person offering to share power with me because the power wouldn't turn back on. When the huge branches fell on the fence, instead of the neighbor pushing it over into my yard, the neighbor was pulling it into their yard to cut it up, is what I experienced. And I am not often accused of being an optimistic person. But it is true that when fear creeps in, that we even see those outside of our own families as potential enemies and threats rather than seeing them as neighbors and people to love. A fearful person will compromise and it will change the things that we care about and that we live for. And one of the last and saddest and hardest things that fear does, and many of us know this experience, is it leads to just straight up despair. You just give up because it's too much. It leads to despair. It leads to saying, I just can't handle it. It leads to escape and the need to be numb and the need to turn to other things as a way of just like not having to focus on these things that are so scary. And we become addicted and we are hurt ourselves and we make short-sighted choices instead of real meaningful ones that are important. We do this when we focus too much on the things that make us anxious, just as God's people are doing. And he is saying to them, you can have your king, but it is a compromise and it will cost you and you will have less because you are not trusting me, the true king. But there is something in this, because we see so much of ourselves in this, that is ultimately so, so encouraging. And it is this, but God shows compassion to them. Because what does he do? When confronted yet again with the people who are afraid and who are acting the wrong way and who don't trust him even though he's given them every reason to, what does he do? He says, you in your fear and your brokenness and your inadequacy, I love you and I am going to work with you. Is there any better news than the news, the good news, that God does not say, because you're afraid and you don't trust me, I'm done with you. But he says, in your fear and in your trembling and in your weakness, I am still going to be your God. And that when he does that, he is not compromising, but he's showing compassion. And those are not the same thing. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go, every man to his city. God gives the people the king that they ask for. He remains their God, though. I can relate to the feeling of the anxiety that comes when I focus on these many overwhelming things outside. And there is no better news to me. than the fact that God says, I am with you in that. 
And that we say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Because if he leaves us in that, we're really in trouble. And we have every reason to fear. The solution to this is simple. It is not trying not to be afraid. It is not telling ourselves lies about how the anxieties, the the things to be afraid of aren't real and and about how they're overblown and about how the world is really better than we want to think it is or whatever. That is not the answer to this. The answer to this is what the people always must have done, should have done in the beginning, which is to, instead of focusing on the enemy at the borders around them, It is to keep their eyes fixed upon God because a fear of the Lord leaves no room for these other things. I love the old hymn, Be Thou My Vision, which says, Be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save that thou art. Thou, my best thought, by day or by night, waking or sleeping, thy presence my light. The answer is that God is our vision, that He is who we fix our gaze upon. And when the fear creeps in and the anxiety creeps in and you have a year like we've all been having, the sky is literally falling on you, the answer is to fix your vision and your gaze upon God. To focus upon how big and how good he is. And because of that, there is no room for these other things. Let's pray. Father, it is so restful to know that ultimately we can fix our vision upon you, our gaze upon you, and that you will allow these other things to begin to crowd out. Father, there are reasons why, and I know them firsthand, there are reasons why many of us are prone to anxiety, are prone to fear, are prone to depression, are prone to these things, and and they feel outside of our control, beyond our control. And Father, there are so many things to be afraid of. You don't deny that, but God where your people have continued to forsake you and and let you down is they have lost sight of how big and how good you are when they focus on those things. God, would you be our vision? Would you be the hope of our heart? Would you be the source of our wisdom, the thing in our thoughts? And as we fix our gaze upon you, would you fill us with love that would leave no room for fear. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.